Romans 1.16 to be exact, Romans 15.1. And we'll take a couple of moments of silent prep. Father, we thank you for yet another opportunity to be jarred from our life of occupation with self and with the details of life, to be jarred into occupation with your son, with eternal things rather than temporal things. So grant us the grace now to behold and to contemplate great things in your word and to have a clearer vision of the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines in the face of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We ask this in his name. Amen. We'll get right to it. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, shame is a big item here in Romans because there is competition for superior honor among various groups in Rome, as there are today, both in churches and in society in general. And there's even the new thing now of shaming one another, the shaming of someone for their appearance or for their beliefs or for something or other. And so Paul is very importantly oriented to the gospel in this way. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think this goes back to Isaiah twenty eight sixteen. Behold, I lay in Zion a tested cornerstone, and he that believes will not be ashamed. He that believes will not be ashamed. Paul then has the prophets in his mind all the time because God has ordained that the mystery that's been kept hidden for ages past would now begin to pop or be revealed and pop up in the prophets. That's what Romans sixteen twenty-five to 26 is all about, which will be constantly oriented to in our passages, in our studies. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For the Jew first, and also for the Greek or we could say the word ace, E-I-S here, means to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And the Greek represents all non-Jews at the time. The Grecian culture had overtaken most of civilization at the time. The Hellenistic culture was the dominant culture, and it even took over the Roman culture. So we have this word Greco-Roman. We have the Greco-Roman culture. And so Paul says the gospel, the power, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now the word, the shame is still in this in verse 17. There's an inference here. It almost belongs together as one sentence. And he says, I say not ashamed, Because by it, the righteousness of God is, and we made a verb out of this word apocalypse, as Paul did here, apocalypto. It is the righteousness of God is apocalypsed. That means dramatically disclosed, dramatically revealed, dramatically on display from faithfulness to faithfulness. Ek pistios eis. Piston is the Greek phrase. Just as it is written. And he uses this phrase often because it's in the prophets that the mystery is revealed. And this prophet is Habakkuk, and he's reading, quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. Just as it is written, the righteous one, 
And I will identify him, in at least my view of this, is that righteous one is Jesus. Will live from, or because of, we could say, faithfulness. The righteous one, Jesus Christ, will live because of faithfulness. There is in this, the gospel of Jesus Christ, his faithfulness was his obedience to the Father to the extent of death, even by crucifixion. And the fact that he lives out from that faithfulness is what we could call almost the reward of his faithfulness, which is resurrection and life. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Here we have to thread the needle to interpret because the reformers may have dropped the ball a little bit in their doctrine of justification by faith. They did not develop a strong Christology or a Christ-centered view of salvation. And so I think a proper interpretation will recover a Christocentric soteriology or salvation. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. This does not mean that one has to believe to be saved. That's not what Paul is saying here. It simply states that whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, if one believes to him or to her, the gospel is perceived to be, rightly perceived to be, and even experienced in some measure to be the power of God for salvation. To an unbeliever, the gospel is foolishness. But to someone who believes because they've been gifted with faith, the gospel to them is the power of God for salvation. It's a matter of perspective here. It's a matter of a, an epistemological, radical transformation of the mind, of the thinking. And so we're not dealing here with justification by one's own faith. Just as we're not dealing with justification by one's own works. We're dealing here with rectification by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. By whose obedience, by whose single act of righteousness, all of humankind receives life-giving justification. I cannot emphasize Romans 5.18 enough. I cannot emphasize Romans 5.19 enough. I cannot emphasize Romans 11.32 enough. I cannot emphasize Romans 3.23 enough, which we're going to take a look at in a moment. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned, which not only means that all sinned because they're in Adam. It means that all Every individual has sinned with his or her own volition and became sinners in practice. Being justified by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.24. Can't emphasize it enough. So when we jump over from Romans 3.24, justified by grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. When we jump over to Romans 5, 1, we have to be interpretive there. Therefore, being justified by faithfulness, we have peace with God. Therefore, what does it mean to be justified by grace through the redemption that's in Christ? means to be justified 
by his faithfulness. Now, because God has gifted us with faith, we know that to be true. Until he gifts us with faith, we say with the rest of the world, the gospel is foolishness. So let's look at this again really quickly in verse 16, 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I say not ashamed because by it the righteousness of God is apocalypsed from faithfulness to faithfulness, just as it is written, the righteous one, Jesus, will live because of faithfulness, his own faithfulness. So the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone that believes. What Paul is emphasizing here is whether Jew or Gentile. Just as when he speaks about when he says to Elijah, I have 7,000, he doesn't mean a literal number 7,000. He means the number of people whom I have for myself is unlimited. The number of people whom I have kept for myself is unlimited. The Lord knows them that are his is the inscription on the foundation in 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows them that are his. All are his. And let the one who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity, which means depart from Adamic ontology. That's the first and second half of Romans right there. The Lord knows them that are his, and let those who name the name of the Lord depart from sin, sin's control of the life, we could say. Now let me go further with this, because this is, a, this is where the needle has to be very sharp in its perceptiveness and its interpretation. The needle has to be threaded very carefully. What Paul is saying here is whether one is a Jew or a Gentile. Because most of the groups, in fact, all of the group biases are rooted ultimately in one's Jewishness or Gentileness. And that's what he's getting at here. We are saved by grace. And that's God's unconditional grace. And that grace is a power that is superior to sin. Sin, capital S-I-N, is a power in Paul's view. And Paul's view is an apocalyptic view. An apocalyptic view views things as supernatural powers as they should be viewed. Sin is a power too great for us. It has a reign in history, it, or had a reign in history as king. And Everyone was subjected to the reign. Everyone became a subject of that king up until that reign was finished. When a certain man said, finished. It was a rule that went from Adam to Moses, even though there was no law to define what sin was. Then Moses came along and with him a law that defined what sin was. So sin and sins as a result of the reign of sin became multiplied. They multiplied astronomically in history. And God permitted that to happen so that his grace would superabound when sin abounded. To have sin abound means sin is a power. It has abounding energy. It has a power to control. But where sin abounded, grace, says Romans 5.20, Abounded much more, super abounded, hyper abounded. Grace is a superior power to sin. We could not control ourselves under sin. Sin had control. We could not save ourselves from sin, so a superior power from God did so. It's called grace. For by grace you have been saved and are being saved through faithfulness, and that not of yourselves. 
that not of yourselves. And that means that faithfulness is not from yourselves. That we could say that faith is not from yourselves. We are saved by grace, God's unconditional grace, by a power that is superior to sin, by a power that superabounds where sin abounds. To think apocalyptically, then, is to think of grace not just as favor, it is that, but as power, as a power. To be apocalyptic in our thinking, which is biblical in our thinking, we think of sin not just as a moral objectionable action, but as a power that controls people unto the production of many objectionable actions, deeds, thoughts, commissions, and omissions. So this truth that is brought out here in Romans 1.16 is repeated deeper into the left flank of Romans And by that, I want you to turn to Romans 3, 21 to 22. I can only take a swipe here and there for now at Romans 1, 16 and 17. The depth is unfathomable. So we're going to have to really hit this many times. Same with this passage, 321 to 26. Very thick books have been written on just those six verses. They are phenomenally important. So we'll, look, we'll take a swipe. Again, this is my translation from the Greek text as carefully as I can do it, trying to determine the sense as accurately as I can. As Nehemiah 8.8 8 says, they read the scriptures, gave the sense, and the people went out happy because of it. Romans 3.21, but now, altogether apart from law, Paul's talking about something altogether apart from law. So he's talking about something altogether apart from human performance, including faith, including human faithfulness. Now, altogether apart, chorus is the word, totally apart from, altogether apart from law. And therefore, apart from the works of the law, Paul brilliantly brings in, first he shuts the mouth of the whole world in 319. Romans shuts the mouth of everybody in the world. As I said earlier on, only to open the mouth of all believers in Rome to glorify God with a single expression of praise. He shuts our mouth to open our mouth in glorying in God. The glorying that he shuts our mouth about is the glorying that's not good. It's a glorying of boasting, self-boasting, of vain glory that provokes other people to envy and anger. Paul said it straight out in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, such glorying is not good. It becomes a leaven that leavens the whole lump of clay, the whole church. And so... Our mouth must be shut with regard to boasting. We're studying that Sunday mornings as we fan out Jeremiah 9.23 throughout Romans. But now, altogether apart from law, a righteousness from God. Now, I'm going to translate it this way, and I've done a lot of homework on this to get this translation, and I'll have to make a lot of explanation in the future for it. But a righteousness from God should be understood as a deliverance enacted by God. A deliverance or a salvation performed by God. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because therein the righteousness of God or an act of salvation performed by God is apocalyptically revealed. What can you be ashamed of there? Because your performance isn't in it at all. It's a, it's a divine performance. I can be totally unashamed of a divine performance. If I look at my human performance from birth till present time, there's a mixture of great shame, sometimes regret, sometimes condemnation, self-condemnation. And there might even be a little self-congratulation here, here and there one or two times. But not too many. But I'm not ashamed of the gospel. 
So Paul then, he's saying the same thing, only he's fanning it out with great power here in 21. Now, altogether apart from law, a righteousness from God or a deliverance enacted by God has been made known. So we have apocalypto. His righteousness is apocalypto in Romans 1. Now we have phanerao. Phanerao, P-H-A-N-E-R-O-O. Apocalypto, A-P-O-K-A-L-U-P-T-O. Both of these are, I abbreviate in my notes, apocalyptic terms. Phanerao means to be manifested or made known. Apocalypto means to, to the same thing. It means that they're both apocalyptic verbs. They're sort of like synonyms. They're saying similar things. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I say not a shame because by it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God, which is the divinely enacted deliverance, is apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness, from whose faithfulness to whose faithfulness. The answer is, from God's faithfulness demonstrated in Christ to Christ's faithfulness participated in by us. Now, there should be silence here, and you should be able to hear a pin drop or even a needle drop. We are threading the needle tonight. Because as far as all the commentaries I've read, no one has said that. But we're going to test this. It's going to get tested by fire. It's going to be tested by water. It's going to be tested by objections. It's going to be tested in every possible way. Because the word of God is like refined silver and refined gold. But now, together, altogether apart from law, a righteousness from God or a deliverance enacted by God has been made known. Phanerao, a verb akin to apocalypto. Phanerao is also used in Romans 16, 26 about the manifestation of the mystery kept silent for times immemorial in the past, but now by the commandment of God made known. Where? In the writings of the prophets. You say, but it was always in the writing of the prophets since the prophets are written. Yeah, but it's only now that the mystery is unveiled in the writings of the prophets. They didn't know that Habakkuk 2.4 was speaking about Jesus Christ. They just spoke of some righteous one. The Qumran texts, which are what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls. Everybody made a big hoopla about that. The main personality of the Qumran texts was a person called the teacher of righteousness. But the teacher of righteousness arose from the Essenes, the E-S-S-E-N-E-S, -E -E which were extremely rigid and legalistic Jewish scholars. And they formed a cult, as it were, or a sect, and it was pretty ascetic, and they had the teacher of righteousness. It is, in fact, more and more coming into view for me that Paul is actually going against the notion of a teacher of righteousness as found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because that teacher was a teacher of legalistic righteousness, of a righteousness by the performance of the acts of the law, by a rigid adherence to Torah. And they believed that they were going to survive in the eschatological day of wrath because they were specifically obedient to the Torah's demands. Oddly enough, we have the Dead Sea Scrolls because the community that wrote them were wiped out by the Romans on the way to Jerusalem. And so they had to hide them. And they were found. There's a lot we can learn from the Dead Sea Scrolls, but we can't learn the gospel from them. So this teacher that Douglas Campbell talks about, he might be on to something. I don't go, I will not go as far as he went on some things, and I'll explain that. We're going to have a little dialectic with even better call Paul on some things. But there is a teacher of righteousness who teaches a righteousness according to the law. 
And Paul opposes this teacher of righteousness because the word of righteousness is all about God enacting something without us even in the picture, but for us. But now, altogether apart from law, a righteousness from God has been made known. Listen carefully. Attested by the law. Paul plays with the word law here. There's a righteousness apart from law, but the law testifies of it. The law talks about it. The law actually testifies that this righteousness apart from the law is to be revealed. And it's the right righteousness. Paul does a brilliant wordplay here. But now, altogether apart from law, a righteousness from God or a deliverance enacted by God has been made known. And then it says, attested by the law and the prophets. You compare this passage with Romans 1-2 and Romans 16-26, the writings of the prophets. Then in verse 22, here's the kicker. A righteousness put in brackets, a deliverance or a salvation enacted by God through the faithfulness of Jesus the Messiah. He's kind of explaining what he said in 117. Therein is revealed the righteousness of God from faith to faith. Here he says that the law and the prophets testify of a righteousness enacted by God through the what? The faith of Jesus Christ, which means the fidelity of Jesus, the Messiah. You were saved by an act of a Messiah 2,000 years before you were even born. Faith is that which the Spirit awakens you to. And why do we go to church? To keep that faith awake. That's why. It's not to socialize, although that's part of it. It's like all the things you really want, like friendship, socialization, refuge, all the things we want from church, we get when we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. But I love what he, see what he's getting to. He keeps on getting to it. A righteousness enacted by God through the fidelity of Jesus, the Messiah to all those who believe. What's the gospel to you? Well, I don't believe. So it's foolishness to me. What's it to you? Well, I believe. So I think it's the power of salvation. It's the power of God for salvation. Well, do you think you got it when you believe? No, I think God showed it to me by giving me faith, and by faith I understand, in Hebrews 11.3. Will he give faith to everybody? According to Acts 17.31-32, he will. God raised him from the dead and provided faith for everyone. In other words, proof or evidence that's irresistible to be believed. When every eye sees him in resurrection, every tongue will praise him. Not just confess. The word is praise. Read Romans 14, 11, right in the heart of Romans, right flank. Every tongue will sing praises to me, says God. That means every tongue in Isaiah 45, 23, will praisefully acknowledge allegiance to me, says Yahweh. And he swore by himself that that would happen. I'm not going to argue with him. So much gospel preaching, including the gospel preaching I did for years and years, disagreed with God on what he swore would happen. That everyone would issue toward him a saving confession. People wonder why the church is, there's an exodus from instead of a pilgrimage to churches. Because they haven't been preaching the gospel. While they say, we're preaching the gospel. Paul hammers this so hard, it's almost like, well, it's like watching Pastor Brown bowl. Now, what the, I love, there's one thing in bowling that's no other sport has. The rightly placed ball right in the heart of where the strike zone is 
makes the pins explode. I mean, they go, and it's such a satisfying thing to see the pins explode. They're everywhere. They collapse. They're gone. Paul bowls some strikes in Romans, and all the pins explode, and it's satisfying to see it. See, I did a bowling analogy just for Pauletta, not for Pastor Brown. Because there's a bolathon, April 7th. So, but look what he's doing here to all those who believe. But here's the kicker. Here's what he's after practically in Romans. For there is no difference. For there is no difference. Well, there's a difference between me and them. I'm a Jewish Christian with a heritage going all the way back to Moses and then all the way back to Abraham. And I am of that heritage. And so we do keep a few of the kosher laws together. Our tables are kosher set tables. We have salvation history. We are, there's a difference between us and the Gentile Christians. And the Gentile Christians say, there's a difference between us and them. They're weaklings. They're frail. They're still wanting to obey these little laws of Moses. And we know we're, no one is justified by the works of the law. We're different. Paul says there is no difference. All the pins explode. What a strike. To all those who believe, God has made known a deliverance. The difference between me and the so-called unbeliever is God gave me the gift of faith, and I understand what the gospel is. That's the only difference. To all those who believe, God has made known, it says. He has made known a deliverance. It doesn't say God delivers those who believe. It says he makes known a deliverance that is altogether apart from law and therefore apart from anything man could do in the flesh to rectify himself. In other words, believing is not a condition to receive this Deliverance, this righteousness from God. This believing is the condition for understanding that there is now a deliverance from God that is unconditional and universal because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The more I understand this gospel, the more when I say the name Jesus Christ, I say it with the utmost reverence now and respect and love. As Hebrews 11.3 says, by faith, we understand. That's as far as we'll go there for that verse. By faith, we understand that the worlds that are made were made of things that don't appear, etc., but the, the seen world is made of phenomena or brought about by phenomena unseen. We know that. But by faith, we understand, says a whole lot right in that phrase. By faith, we understand what the gospel is. He doesn't say by faith we are justified. The only time faith is actually given a definition is in Hebrews 11.1. 1. It says now faith is the conviction of things not seen. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It didn't say you're saved by it or justified by it. It goes on to say, by it, the elders or people from dispensations past, if you want to use the word dispensations, caught you, from ages past, obtained a good report, the elders, the presbyteroi, the men and women of the past, before even the scriptures were written in some cases, obtained a good report. They obtained a good sit rep from God. For through faith we understand. We could say by faith we understand that the Lord does mercy let not the wise man boast in his wisdom let not the strong man boast in his strength let not the rich man boast in his wisdom let him that boasts boast in this that he knows and understands me that i do mercy in all the earth 
that I show mercy to all is another way of saying it in Romans 11.32. My faith knows that he does mercy to all. That's my bliss. If you insist on knowing my bliss, say, you know Hall and Oates. I know that couple right down there, those Messics, they know Hall and Oates. If you insist on knowing my bliss, my bliss is in faith in the mercy of God for all. If you insist, now you did insist on knowing my bliss. That's what it is. So then, so greet one another with a holy kiss. So, that would be fun some night just to do a gospel rendition of secular songs. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be great. can do that after I die. Now, um, so, this believing is the condition for understanding that there's now a deliverance from God that's unconditional and universal by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Does your faith understand that? Happy are you? doesn't mean you're going to be giddy happy and skip through life and you won't have any adversities, but happy are you if you believe that. Happy are you if you believe that, because that means you will have joy and peace in the believing. And so life won't give you bliss. People won't give you bliss. This world won't give you bliss. You don't even belong here. But this faith will give you bliss. Faith in the unconditional grace and universal mercy of Yahweh. I can't make you understand it. I can't give you faith. But we meet here because it offers the opportunity for God to awaken faith, keep it awake. You see what happens to Christians when they're not around the teaching of the word or they don't study or they're not in fellowship around the word. You see what happens to them, they start getting dull because they're not exposing themselves to the message that awakens them and keeps them awake about this truth. Our faith is not the means for justification. It is the means of understanding the mystery of a universal Salvation. There it is. The slap in the face. The pins go exploding. Christians that hear it, if there's ten of them, they'll go every which way. Up, over, out. Some will even go out into the aisle. We're working on a mystery here. We're approaching a major understanding through a minute exegesis. So now Paul bowls an explosive strike here. Pins everywhere. With his universal homartiology. What is homartiology? The study of sin. What's universal homartiology? All have sinned. (laughs) That's all. Very simple. There, you just got a theology semester on homartiology. There's no difference, Paul says, because all have sinned. Now here, listen carefully to this. That's Romans 3.23. Being justified by grace, 3.24. Through the redemption, that is, by Christ Jesus. Now, here's a question. Does this mean that all sinned? Here's, be careful of this now, because this is where I, this is as far as I've seen before, as opposed to what I'm seeing now. Now, does this mean that all sinned when Adam sinned? Or does it mean that each and every person has sinned? I think it means both. When Adam sinned, he became, by God's incomprehensible wisdom, 
a single inclusive representative, sir, S-I-R, of all of humankind unto reprobation. God did that. God made Adam a single inclusive representative and a destiny bearer for all humankind. Not fair, is it? Neither is this. This was only an anticipation of God making Jesus Christ a single inclusive representative of all humankind unto redemption. It says it right in Romans 5.15. Adam was an anticipation of Christ. Why? Because Adam's sin brought everybody under the power of sin, where Christ's obedience brought everyone under the power of grace. So God in his infinite wisdom judged. Here's a judgment. I'm going to include everyone in Adam as a single inclusive representative. Well, that means you're blaming all of us for Adam's sin. No, I'm anticipating by a single inclusive representative, a second single inclusive representative that will take the whole human race into redemption. Is that okay with you? That's not fair either. But for those who love justice and want justice, that's just. That's God's justice. That's not man's justice. That's God's justice. This gospel, believe it or not, will have the power to bring about social justice. You say, you never preach social justice. Left-wing churches and liberal theologians talk about social justice. People say to flee churches where they teach about so. I'm not teaching about social justice. I'm just saying it's not brought about by marching. Social justice is brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In the coming age, that will be the basis of social justice. It'll be the basis of a gracious economy. It won't be capitalism, it won't be communism, it won't be Marxism. It'll be a divine economy of unconditional grace and of a faith that works by love on the part of every citizen. Oh, on top of that, there's no sin, no death, and no Adamic ontology left, and everyone has immortal and incorruptible bodies. That helps. So... Added to this, however, when Adam sinned, and this is also extremely important, when Adam sinned, a power was unleashed in the world. It's the power of sin with its inevitable wages, death. Both of which reigned, R-E-I-G-N-E-D, reigned Regnantly as king until their time in power was finished. Their time in power was finished by God's overwhelming grace, a superior power in Christ Jesus' act of obedience to the death of the cross. So even though people die every day, death has lost its power. It's not in rain. It's not raining. For me, death is a profit. It's a gain, Paul says. To live is Christ. To die is gain. For me, who, what did he mean? To me, he sees that. That's the case with everybody, but it's only to the one who is given faith that sees it and can say that. The unleashing of the power called sin over all the world of humanity made it inevitable that each and every human being would sin and become a sinner in practice. Call it praxis if you want. This homardiology 
the study of sin, the theology of sin, takes in all of humanity universally, and it takes in each and every individual human being particularly. Just like God's salvation takes in all of humankind universally, but also hits each and every individual particularly. At one time or another. Arguably, some get it. Pomo. Postmortem. This hemardiology then takes in all of humanity universally and each and every individual human being with one glaring exception, that being Jesus of Nazareth. Individually. As the world of humankind is redeemed and saved universally and as a single divine act of deliverance in Christ on the one hand, on the other hand, each and every individual human, be, human being is saved by grace and through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. The faith to see this and to understand him who has enacted this righteousness in the earth is to be bequeathed to each and every human being without exception. For every eye will see him. Every knee will genuflect to him. And every tongue will acknowledge praise-filled allegiance. Or what we might call the obedience of faith to him. The king of kings. Romans 14.11. Revelation 1.7. Revelation 19.16. 1 Timothy 6. 15 and 16 if you want to add immortality and incorruptibility to the whole situation. So I'm not going to go as far as I wanted to tonight, but I'll say this. All sinned and all are rectified by grace. All came under the power of sin. All are set right by the superior power of grace. You got a problem with that? Do you? If you do, come at me, bro. Or as the more proper gentleman says, advance to my location, sibling. (laughs) Now, (laughs) so, that's how Fraser would say it, or Niles, Fraser and Niles. Advance to my location, sibling. But we live in a popular culture, so even manatees wear T-shirts that say, come at me, bro. So I have to do something between studies. I'm sorry. It's just, you know, the TV's there sometimes. And the record player. All disobeyed. All disobeyed. All disobeyed. And God has mercy on all. You got a problem with that? Come at me. That's not an invitation. I don't have time to debate all day, but write me a note if you want, a short one. All sinned, being justified by the grace of God through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. I don't have a problem with that. All are disobedient, and God imprisoned all in disobedience to have mercy upon all. I have no problem with that. I'm not going to come at my elder brother, Jesus Christ, who says to me, you got a problem with that? Come at me, bro, little bro. He's not ashamed to call us brothers, by the way, and sisters or siblings. Oh, the wealth and the wisdom of God. His ways of doing things are truly beyond the pale and the horizon of human and angelic investigation. 
I'll say that again. Quoting Paul, oh, the, the wealth and the wisdom of God, his ways of doing things, and this is a little commentary with it, are truly beyond the horizon of human and angelic investigation. That's why they have to be apocalyptically revealed. No human investigation, not even angelic investigation, could advise God on such a plan as this. That's why the the church where it's happening is the place angels hover around to learn about the multifaceted wisdom of God, says Ephesians 3.10. They peer into it. They stoop down and look through the crystal glass, as it were, metaphorically speaking, to see what the salvation means. The salvation that has come to you. First Peter one ten and eleven and twelve. In Romans one seventeen, therefore, Jesus Christ is the righteous one. The faith that Paul calls ek pistios from faith is the faithfulness of God that's demonstrated in Christ Jesus. The ace piston to faith is the faithfulness of Christ or the faithfulness of God in Christ entered into by those whom the spirit not only awakens faith, but keeps it awake. Faith comes, is awakened, and keeps awake by hearing or by the message. And the message is the message about Christ. Romans ten seventeen. 117, If each one is given a measure of faith, Romans 12, 3, and they have been. Each one is given a measure of faith. And if everyone is rectified by Messiah's faithfulness, then what's all this stuff about strong in faith versus weak in faith? That's why we go to the other side in Romans 14, 1. Receive the one who's weak in faith, but not to argue with them and bring them into doubtful disputations like the King James says. And let's go to Romans 15 and see where this goes. Instead, if everyone is rectified by Messiah's faithfulness, then what's the weak and strong in faith all about? What's the argument? What's the difference? How can someone boast in their faith, in their strong faith, if their faith is the gift of God and not of themselves? Jesus Christ is the righteous one and the one who lives by his own faithfulness. He's rewarded with, his, with resurrection by his faithfulness to death. This is what we would call a Christological reading of 117. And I have to get the pincer movement in here. That's why I'm teaching it this way. Romans 15 also involves a Christological reading where Christ is obviously the subject matter and where there's now an exhortation to us, a urgent encouragement to us, to all believers, but specifically beginning with Rome here. So we've already seen that Romans 15:9 is Christ speaking. The I in that psalm is Christ. I will Praise you, Father, in the midst of the nations. Now we have a Christological exhortations in Romans 15, 3. Very briefly, let's look at it and starting with verse 1. We who are, quote, the strong, close quote, are obligated. There's that word for debt again that goes all the way back to Romans 1, 14 and 15. We could almost say 1, 15, 15, 1. Pincer strategy. We who are the strong, Paul identifies himself here with the so-called strong, are obligated, ophelomen, to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak, weak, the weaklings. 
because much of the divisiveness among the saints in Rome was rooted in the different heritages of the saints, that is, whether Jewish or Gentile, Paul, who in Romans 11.2 identified himself straight up as an Israelite, here identifies himself with the strong, which is a predominantly Gentile group. What's he doing? He's becoming a Jew to the Jew and a Gentile to the Gentile in order to save all of them from resentment, from disunity, from divisiveness, and from the very destruction of their spiritual life. So let's read it real quick, and I'll fill out the, I'll flesh it out. Here's the skeleton. I'll flesh it out a little more perhaps next time we meet. Romans 15.1. We who are the strong are obligated to bear patiently with the frailties of the weak. Each one should strive to accommodate to his or her neighbor for his good to build him up. Verse 3, for Christ, the Messiah, we have a Christological reading in the righteous one shall live by faith in Romans 1.17. Here we have a Christological, obvious Christological right reading and exhortation. For the Messiah did not please himself. What would you say on the gravestone of this man named Jesus, not knowing that in three days he'll be arisen. I would say this. I knew him well, someone would say. I'd say he did not please himself. Christ did not please himself. Instead, as it is written, this is Christ speaking in the Psalms again. The insults that were aimed at you have fallen on me. Insults that have fallen on the weak, Paul says, they fell on me. I feel the pain. I feel the hit when my friend gets hit. The insults that were meant for him have hit me. And that's what Jesus Christ said about his people. That's what he said about the Father. Father, the blasphemies that were intended for you, well, they've fallen on me. Where? At Calvary. So in closing, let's look at four through six. That's just the skeleton in my translation. I'll flesh it out later. For everything that was written before in the scriptures, here's bibliology. Everything that was written before in the scriptures, that's the writings of the prophets, the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Compare 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is profitable for doctrine, for instruction. How about 1 Corinthians 10.11? It was all written for us upon whom the end of the ages has come. The climax of the change of ages has come. To the end that through the endurance and through the encouragement imparted by the scriptures, we would have hope. Now may God, who is the source of fortitude and encouragement, grant you agreement with one another. There it is. Agreement with one another. There is no difference. May he grant you agreement with one another. That is literally to think the same way. If everybody thinks the same way about God's universal mercy, where's the fight from? Where's the factiousness? And it means to think the same way according to Messiah Jesus, who didn't please himself. That's the point. So that together with one mouth, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans 3.19, every mouth is shut. In Romans 15.6, all the believers in Rome with one mouth opened are glorifying the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They glorify God because they've ceased glorying in themselves. In the boasting that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 is not good. In this teaching, we are seeing a Christological reading of Romans 1.17 in the left flank, balanced by an overtly Christological exhortation in Romans 15.1 through 6 on the right flank. Participation in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ is a faith working by Love, says Galatians 5, 6, energized by the Holy Spirit, 
who is the spirit of the Holy One. He is called the Holy Spirit because he is the spirit of the Holy One. And the Holy One is Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for this yet another opportunity to see the shocking display of your kindness, to see the powerful display of your soteria, your salvation, to see the light of the knowledge of the glory, your glory, shining from the face of your Son right into our hearts.